Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Tim Bicegel. He is showing us what a superhero is really all about and the intensity of fatherhood. He's a podcaster, he's a logo designer, and he's a geek behind the mic at night. Tim, welcome. How are you doing? Good. Just literally just got out of my live stream. Funny science fiction. How was that? Yeah, yeah. We had a couple guys on there, showboys. We talked with them about movie tropes and the overused ones that have been done too much in science fiction, superhero, fantasy themed movies. And after they talk about what trope it was and how it was used in the movie, you know, did it affect their view of that movie or the trope? Did it did it make it less enjoyable for them, basically? And what did they say? Can you give me any of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think any one of us had a problem with any of the tropes that were actually used as I chose uh, the movie Endgame, Marvel's Endgame, and the the problem with time travel in that movie. And I have a problem with the, the, the time travel because it's inconsistent and in how they present it, how they use it. You know, on this side of the story, it's don't do this. This is bad. You're going to screw up the timeline. On this side of the story, it's, eh, well, this is how we're going to get to our story. So we're just going to push it through. And so there's a couple different instances of that in Endgame where they say it one way, but they do it another way. And some of that is just, you know, I think there's the part of the storytelling with, with imperfect people being, okay, this is this is all part of it. But the other part of it is is that it's inconsistent. As a, a fan of the movie, it makes it really kind of hard to watch. But overall, it doesn't affect the enjoyment of the movie because there's so many strong parts that you're able to overlook the fact that there's these couple things. I wonder how many people pick up on that. Actually, you know what? I think more than what you think. And, and the reason I say that is because now when I went out to do my research for it, I, I, I thought, you know, maybe I'm the only one who noticed this. And there's a Reddit subthread out there that is just absolutely huge with people, you know, not only talking about just about this particular instance, but this has a very large subthread itself on Reddit. But, you know, a whole lot of, of trope inconsistencies and, and how these, these, I mean, it's a storytelling device. It's going to get used over and over again, a lot like music. There's only so many chords. There's going to be similarities between this movie, that movie, and this song, that song. It's going to happen, right? It's just how it's used, how it's played, how it's presented. And when it comes to a movie as a storytelling device, it only works if it's consistent. Okay. Also speaking about how many people might catch something like this. I want you to talk about the growth of a community that you've been a part of. This science fiction community podcast came from you being a part of a Facebook community. Can you talk about that story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had started on my first podcast that was called Focused on Forward. It's still, I should say, was called Focused on Forward. It is called Focused on Forward. On Focused on Forward, I had interviewed and he just happened to be a member of this science fiction group. And he was the, the son of the, the creator of the group, the founder of the group. The founder of the group said, hey, you should interview my son. His child had gone through some time in the, in the NICU and it'd be a, you know, a good story for your podcast. I went, okay. So after that, I became an admin in the group, you know, because I was already friends with one of his sons and I kind of knew of the other two, but I was, you know, it was one of those things where I didn't really know them, but I, 
I knew of them, but I've gotten to know them clearly since then. He goes, hey, you know, my son says that, you know, you're a big sci-fi fan and you're, you're already a member of the group. Would you mind helping out? You know, the group's growing so fast. I can't keep up with it. Now, at the time when I joined, there was only about, about 30,000 members, which I say only because and that's still a pretty big Facebook group. We're rounding up on about a year since we started the podcast for Funny Science Fiction. And that's just about the same time that I started uh, in the group as well. So in that year, we have increased by 108,000 members. As of this morning, I want to say that we're at 138, almost 139,000 members as of this morning. We have heavy activity on this group. And it's really cool because you'll throw a topic out there and within minutes, there's hundreds, sometimes thousands of responses and shares and likes and all these different things. And so, you know, there's that whole new thing with Facebook right now where they want to like limit the activity on certain, you know, we can't do that in our group. Uh, we get anywhere, you know, between two to 5,000 posts a day. This upcoming Friday's release, we have an interview with a voice actress by the name of Shannon Farnham. Now, before Gal Gadot and before Linda Carter, she was the original Wonder Woman. So in the, the animated series, Super Friends and Challenge of the Super Friends in the early to mid 1970s, she was the voice of Wonder Woman. And so we had a lot of questions about if your jet's clear, invisible, how do you ever find it? You know, do you have a GPS tracker for it? There's a lot of silly questions like that, but there were some really good questions. And when we include people's questions from our group, we call it out that, hey, you know, like if, you know, you were a member of the group and you asked a question of, of whoever it was. And when we include people's questions from our group, we we call it out that, hey, you know, like if, you know, you were a member of the group and you asked a question of, of whoever it was. Uh, so I'll use Shannon's name in this instance. So like, so Shannon, Rena Watts had a question for you and, and here's what she wanted to know. That's a smart tip. You know, I have taken questions from my audience as well, but I don't think that I've used their name. And I think that that's a nice idea. Tell me about this third podcast. Shortly here, I've got about uh, in season two of Focused on Forward. I have about five, maybe six episodes left. And then Focused on Forward is going to go into hiatus for a little while, mainly because I think I need a change of pace. I enjoy Focused on Forward. I started it. I got to tell you this so I can tell you that. So uh, bear with me just a moment. It's going to sound a little bit like I'm building a clock to tell you the time because I am. But I started Focused on Forward because I needed something to help me through my own issues at the time. It was a very cathartic way of me handling my own mental health issues and my own uh, emotional health issues that I was going through uh, at the moment after my daughter's long hospitalization. It, it was helpful because I was listening to the stories of so many inspirational people and I was getting all these really cool tips of how they tried this thing and this helped them, or they tried that thing and it helped them. And I found that it helped me, you know, while they were saying all these different things, I would take notes while, while my guests are talking, I might nine times out of 10, because it's an audio only podcast, my head's down. You see the top of my head because I'm writing, but I've, I think I've gotten to a point where it, the podcast, at least for me, has done what I needed it to do. And it's not that I'm no longer interested in it. And it's not that it's not my baby because that's always... My heart will always be with that podcast because it was my first, but I wanted to try something else. So see, I have this other lane. So I have, I have that, it's a, which is a very serious podcast. We're talking about all these really cool and inspirational stories of what people have gone through and these really sometimes gut-wrenching stories, but with amazing endings of what they're doing now. And I, you know, I, I couldn't be any prouder of the people that I've had on my show, Rena Watts included. But one of the things that I love is that I had this outlet called Funny Science Fiction because I'm a massive nerd. I love Star Wars. I love superhero movies. I grew up on comic books and comic books, cartoons and all these different things. And I can't get enough of that stuff. And I, so for me, it was an opportunity to, to step out and try these other things. Well, along the way, 
I've realized that I have other loves as well. And I, and I want to give oxygen to those. And I'm a huge music fan and I love pop culture and I, you know, and I love all these different things. And I went, well, I can only shoehorn so many things into funny science fiction because that's a pretty narrow topic. Okay. We only talk to people who have some tie into science fiction, superheroes, or fantasy. So if you're not in one of those three lanes, I can't get you on the show and it becomes difficult sometimes. So I started talking with my co-host on the show. Her name is Kathleen. So we have three hosts on Funny Science Fiction. I talked with Kathleen and I said, hey, you know, what about you and I just going off and, and, and starting and trying this other thing? And Kathleen's the little sister I never wanted, but I still have her anyway. I say that joke to her all the time. She knows it. It's, it's, this will be nothing new when she hears it. And I'm the annoying older brother that she did, really didn't want because she already had to. But the thing I like about pop, it's called Pop Culture Addicts. And the thing that I love about this show already, we've, or we've, let's see, we've recorded three episodes so far. I've got 15 episodes lined up. Before we start airing them, I'm going to have about 10 in batch before we start airing. I think for a topic like this, it's smart for you to, to have constant interaction with, with your fan base. Okay. And anybody who's going to follow your podcast, because you're talking about, about pop culture and things that are happening now and things that are going on now. I don't want it to be two weeks and then they haven't heard something from us. It's either going to be September 6th or 13th will be our premiere date. Our first episode is with Carol Baskin from Big Cat Rescue. So Nice. And yeah. what are some topics we can expect? Music plays a very big role in my life. So I'm very excited that we have a couple of different musicians. I don't want to say who they are yet because I we're still working on getting them confirmed. But if it happens, you will probably be able to hear me giggle because one of them is a 90s era grunge musician who I... The band I absolutely just love. I am super stoked about that. It's a great possibility coming up. We're going to have a few panel discussions as well about the growth of indie music and how that's really exploded over the last 10 years, how indie music used to kind of be kind of hidden off in the closet. And now it's more mainstream than it's ever been. We're also going to kind of dive back into some sci-fi topics too, because of course, sci-fi is also pop culture. One of those topics is we're going to talk about the the descent of the mental health of Anakin Skywalker from the time of being taken from his mother to the time of his, of his redemption. Can you relate to Anakin? There are things from my own past that, yeah, I can see where he has some of that. You know, I have some, some separation issues myself that I work through and some trust issues that I work through, you know, because my mom and my natural father were divorced when I was six. I always, always under the impression that my natural father was coming back and he was coming back for me. And I, but, you know, and at the same time, I didn't, what I didn't understand is why my natural father left. But when he left, I mean, I was six years old. You don't understand at that point that you, that there's such a thing as a, a half sibling. You don't understand that. You just know that these, these other kids, those are your brothers and sisters. So when my natural father moved to California, I took it very personally that he didn't take me with him. I didn't understand why that really messed with my head for quite a few years and by quite a few, I mean, I'm 44 and I still think it messes with me. I understand it now better than I ever did. And I have a much different outlook on it now than I did back then because of being an adult and, and being able to rationalize a few things and see a few things. And, and of course, understanding the fact the difference between there wasn't an ice cube chance in hell that my mother was going to let me go uh, anywhere that she wasn't. And, you know, I understand that as a parent now, good luck taking my kids away from me. But I had a hard time understanding why my dad was just able to walk away. And that, that never really sat right with me. That's heartbreaking. You know, it is. And, you know, but it's also, it's also personality for me because 
it caused me to have a, a bit of a riff with my stepfather when, when he came into the picture, because here was a guy who I thought was trying to take my dad's place, trying to take my dad's job, so to speak. And I wanted him to be unemployed <laughs> when it comes right down to it. The long and short is, you know, I, I hated his guts on the opposite hand. I was also desperate for a father figure, somebody who has been kind with me and, you know, my mom tried, but she was a single mom. She was working at least two jobs, maybe three. I, I don't remember. Again, I was young. We were on state aid. We were broke as could be. My mom was doing everything she could to keep us, you know, my, my brothers, my older brother is six years older than me, and we were her only two children. So there wasn't any chance of us going with, with my father, but she was doing everything that she could to keep us in clothes and keep us in food. And, and she was, she was working her tail off. No disrespect to her or anything, but there she was gone a lot. We were latchkey kids. You know, I came home, uh, you lock the door, you turn on the TV. That's the way it worked. You know, you get your homework done, you, you know, try to get your chores done before mom got home so you didn't get in trouble. There were feelings that I had at that time that I, I just, I didn't understand. And I didn't understand that why things were happening. And, and, you know, I knew why my mom wasn't there as much as she was. And it wasn't because she didn't have a choice. She was doing what she had to do. And I respect the hell out of her for doing it. So to anybody who's a single mother who's listening, you have my undying respect. I was very kind of adrift at that point in my life. I didn't understand why my dad didn't want me. I didn't understand why this new guy was here. I didn't understand why I had to call him dad. I didn't understand why, you know, all these, there was all these whys. And I didn't really understand many of the things that were, were attached to them. And so they got married when I, when I think it was about nine. So by the time I was about 13, 12, 13, he and I were in a much better plane. I was calling him dad because I wanted to, because he was the guy that wanted to be with me, wanted to be around me, wanted to treat me as his own, wanted me to be his son, wanted to take care of me, treated my mother like a queen. I don't want to get into too much of it, but there was reasons why my mom and my dad got separated. There was alcohol issues. There was physical abuse issues. So all those things combined, it made it to where this guy was, there, I was starting to see the differences. It's like when you have a genuine article in front of you and there's a, a copycat that you get from wish.com and you can start to see the, the, the obvious differences between the two. That's what it was like. The older I got, the more I saw those differences. Because at first, you know, they were both dad, but there was dad and then there was dad 2.0. And dad 2.0 had a lot of great upgrades that the first one didn't have, like, you know, sticking around. Uh, that was a big one. Yeah. yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> that's a big one. He was also an imposing dude because now I'm six foot three now, but he's six foot seven and he's a big dude. He's not a thin man. Okay. He looked like he'd been playing, you know, offensive line or defensive line for, you know, a big 10 school. And he could be, you know, he could be physically imposing, but he was, he was a gentle giant. He would sit me down. And, and one of the things I always liked about his name is Rick, by the way. And one of the things I always liked about Rick was that we were able to sit down and we were able to have a conversation as friends. And that friendship turned into a very real relationship, you know, where I started to view him and see him more as dad. And here's where I knew that he was not going to be Rick anymore, that he was officially going to be dad. And I, to this day, I still call him dad. When I was 12 years old, my natural father had yet to pay any child support ever on me. My mother was trying to get him to pay child support and it just wasn't going well. And Rick proposed something. He said, well, you're not paying for him anyway. And if you're not interested in taking care of your child, why don't you let him take my last name and I will take care of him? So he offered to adopt me. He sat me down. He explained to me why he wanted to adopt me. 
the same feelings that I had when I was eight or nine came back immediately. I'm like, well, no, that's my, my dad. He's never going to let this happen because he loves me. He's, you know, and I had all these feelings come rushing back in that this, there was no way that this, that this man who I had idolized for so long and had built up in my head for so long, even though this, this other guy, he was pretty cool. He had some really nice personality traits that I really liked the whole sticking around thing, bring that back up again. You know, he had this, all these other things I liked about, but there was no way he was going to let that happen. So I called him, I called my natural father and I said to him, Rick wants to adopt me. What do you think about that? Now I was 12. I was almost 13 years of age uh, when I made this phone call. I will always remember this phone call because he said to me, well, I think you're at an age where you can probably make that decision for yourself. After all, you're what, nine, 10 years old now? Now I was immediately pissed off as a child and I slammed the phone down that back in the day when you could actually slam a phone down, not just aggressively hit the end button, but I slammed the phone down, said some very non-friendly words that rhyme with truck to him. It crushed me, absolutely crushed me that this man that I idolized had no idea how old his child was. I have three kids. I know their birthdays. I know how old they are. I know about them. And I have gone through most of my life from that point forward, making the, you know, a lot of people wear the, those bracelets that say, you know, what would Jesus do? I have lived most of my life in uh, doing the opposite of whatever it is he would do. Not Jesus, but you know, my, my natural father. And after that, I, I didn't talk with him again until I was 21. Whoa. I refused to. I had no need to ever talk with him. And when I was 21, I called him because I had that I knew of at the time that I had four. I, since then, I've discovered two more brothers and a sister. So I'm the youngest of eight. And uh, on my natural father's side of the family, I'm the baby of eight, or as we like to call me, Mr. 1976. I had these other, these other four that I knew of, and I wanted to get in contact with him. So I dug up his old phone number. He was living out in California still. And I called him and I said, I, I would like to talk with my siblings if I can. And he told me that that was not be a possibility because I chose to leave the family and I did no longer share the last name. So I lost all rights to my siblings. So I, again, told him some words that rhymed with truck and uh, hung up the phone. Didn't talk to him again until I was 35. Those are some big gaps. Some huge gaps. You know, in that meantime, I had tried a lot of different ways to like reach out and find my siblings and talk to my siblings. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I had almost reached out to uh, like the Maury Povich show or something like that, where, you know, shows like that, where they were, because I had seen episodes where they had gone and found people's siblings estranged yes, family members yeah, yeah. And bring them back and you guys but i was like what if it's hello weird you know i don't want to do that on on tv there's no way there's no way i could do that also um, did you have expectations for those relationships actually only one <laughs> only one of them and, and i say that because i was so young when my mother and my father split i was four so my memories of them were were very finite they were very crisp on certain things and then there was a lot of minutiae around them. My brother, Michael, and uh, my sister, Ursula, I had very specific memories about them and, and what they were doing. I didn't remember so much about my brother, David. But then there was my sister, Suzanne. I might tear up on this one, but just roll with me. My sister, Suzanne, when I was little, when, throughout all the chaos and the craziness that was going on in the house, because even if you're little, you, you pick up on things. You don't know what's wrong, but you know that something's not right. Little kids can sense when things aren't right. I remember my sister's voice. I remember Suzanne's voice very clearly, distinctively clearly. And I never really understood why 
And I, you know, I still don't understand why it's such a strong memory to me, but she used to, in the, the front room of the house that, that we lived in, she used to sit with me in a rocking chair and she would read me stories and she would color with me and she spent all kinds, she used to take me to the park and play with me. And I know that when I was scared, I would go to her and I saw her as very comforting. My mom was trying to take care of herself during this time with a relationship with a man who wasn't treating her right. She had all these these stepchildren who hated her bleeding guts. There's a whole lot there going on there, but but there there was a lot of things up in the air and a lot of things that were not as kosher as they could have been for the for the time, you know. They're trying to work through these things. But my sister Suzanne's voice, I, I remember that so distinctively clearly. And so I had tried very hard to reach out to all of them and and track them down and use all these these websites that help you look up people, which I will tell you they're crap. Every single one of them is crap. The only way I got access to my siblings was I had used this website and none of the phone numbers, none of the addresses were current. They were all old. I could find their names and it showed them all as, as, as related to one another. And so I knew that I had found the, you know, I had found the right group of people, but I wasn't finding the right access point in. But there happened to be this name that kept popping up over and over and over again. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me what this person had to do with anything that was related to my siblings. So I sent them, I had to start a Twitter account so I could send them a message, a private message. And I, you know, I'm not understanding how Twitter worked. And, you know, and I'm even fortunate that she even answered because I sent her this random woman on Twitter, a private message. Yeah. And she. She opened it. Uh, the, the chances of that happening in, in 2021 and it not being an inappropriate picture is, is highly rare. Okay, let's be honest. And I had to tell her who I was. That, hey, by birth, my name is Timothy Patrick Riley. I'm looking for my siblings. My natural father's name is this. My mother's name is this. And so I laid it all out for her. I'm like, I don't know how you have anything to do with, with any of this, but your name keeps coming up and Ask me anything. And if I know the answer, I will tell you. If I don't know the answer, I, I'll tell you, I don't know. And so she asked me a couple questions back, you know, can you give me your brother Michael's date of birth? I'm like the specific day. No, but I know it's in this month. What about your sister, Suzanne? What's her middle name? And so I told her she had like four or five questions and I had answered all the questions apparently appropriately. And she said, okay, your brother, Michael was my first husband. And come to find out they had a child together and you know all this and i'm like oh okay she's like we're not i'm not super close with with your sister suzanne but i do have her phone number so she called suzanne and she's like well, I, I can't give it to you because i don't know if suzanne would be okay with that I'm like fair enough i don't know what her life has been like i don't know what she's gone through i was not offended by that i didn't take it personally that you know i'm like okay well would you be willing to give her my phone number that if she's interested in talking with me I talked with my sister, Suzanne, that night for the first time in 30 years. I was four years old the last time I talked with my sister. I was 35, almost 36. And the moment she started talking, I knew who it was. I mean, just like that. The way that she said hello and the way that she said my name. That was a very uh, emotional phone call. And so sweet. I love my sister, Suzanne, a whole lot. She's an amazingly sweet woman who basically raised all of us kids. Wow. You know, she, she had an awful lot thrown on her because in between, you know, my mother, there was another woman named, you know, who had my brother Shannon. And then there was the original wife that had all the rest of the kids. There was all these changing of families and, and motions and, and everything. And at that time, my sister 
was the oldest, but she's still the oldest technically. She was basically raising the kids. And you were the baby. And I was the baby. And, but I think I talked with her that night for three and a half hours. Aww. And it was kind of funny because she kept telling me that she doesn't like to talk on the phone that much. And I'm like, you know, we've been on the phone for like, she's like, yeah, but we got catching up to do. So it's okay. Well, I'm so glad that that relationship has continued. She's coming to visit three times and I owe her a visit out. And she lives North of San Francisco in California. I owe her a visit out on the West coast, but I, I called and I talked with my sister Ursula that night, come to find out uh, she named one of her sons after me. Aww. Totally didn't cry about that. Talked with my brother, Michael which was cool. I've had an opportunity to sit down and, and, and reconnect with each of them. Michael's come out a couple of times. Ursula lives in Michigan now. And they each kept asking me about this other brother. And I'm like, who are you talking about? Come to find out there was another brother. And he and I talked for about two, three hours that night too. I was up to like three, four o'clock in the morning. And I was completely just running on adrenaline because, you know, I hadn't talked to these people in forever. Uh, what is it the... like to find a sibling and connect with someone who you share a parent with? It's an odd feeling, it, but it's also a very comforting feeling at the same time, because Ursula and, and I, and, and Michael and I didn't have as close of a relationship because I was so little and, you know, they had their own things going on in life. They were young teenagers when all this was starting to fall apart and they've lived 30 years of their life without me. They've had all these things happen to them in their life and they've, they've had marriages and divorces and they've had children and they've had jobs and they've, they've, they've had all these highs and they've had all these lows. So on the one hand, there's the extreme happiness of, of finding somebody that's been separated from you that you've wanted to have connection with. On the other hand, there's also sadness that comes pretty close at the heels of all the excitement. Because when I got done with the, with the phone calls that night, I sat there in my chair. I couldn't help but smile because I, I'd been trying so long to find my brothers and sisters to go from that to being a feeling of, but it's been 30 years and I've missed out on so much. You know, they missed out on the birth of all my children. My kids didn't get to grow up with them and have the memories with Aunt Suzanne. I wish that, that my kids had that, but they had awesome uncles and, and on the other side. My, my wife's brother is an amazing man and an incredible uncle. He's been there for every one of my kids all along the way, you know, still is to this day. Have you been able to patch things up with your natural father? No, I tried. And I think he tried as well. But I think sometimes that there's, there's distances that are just too great. Unfortunately, my, my father's starting to go, his health is declining. So even though he and I are not the closest, I'm going down every now and then to help out and give the woman that he's been living with for the last 30 some odd years, a break. She's a really nice woman. And she has, frankly, I think she deserves some wings and a halo. That's really big of you though. Well, that's not how I see it. I, I see it as I'm going down to help out my brothers and sister as well. They're there every day. I live two hours away. That was the other revelation, by the way, in all of this is that I thought he was still living in California. Come to find out he's living two hours South of me in Michigan. I was like, hold the phone. What? That was one of those things, you know, it's like a uh, infomercial on TV, but wait, there's more. Uh, Anything else you want to tell me? Yeah. yeah. You got any other little nuggets to drop? Did he ever tell you that it hurt him that you changed your name? No, frankly, the majority of our discussions have not been that deep. We had one discussion. So again, here, a little bit of a clock to tell you the time throughout all these phone calls with my siblings. I had also 
found out that I had other relatives living in Michigan, aunts, uncles, all these kind of things. So one of them I had reached out to and I said, I asked her specifically, I know you're close with your brother, my father. I'm not ready to talk to him just yet. Please do not give him my number. I don't think I was off the phone with her for five minutes before she called him. And hey, Tim called me and here's his phone number, you know, patch it up. So I was on the way down to the state of Arkansas. We were going down there for a funeral. Rick's grandfather, which by adoption was my great grandfather, had passed away and they were living down in the Arkansas area. All of a sudden I have this phone number that I don't recognize a California. He still had a California phone number. I didn't know who it was, but it kept calling me, you know? So I sent him a voicemail and it, he basically said in the voicemail that he was going to keep calling me until I answered. And so I walked outside of the cabin that we were staying at in Arkansas and we had it out, which was, it was odd because I was there with my dad, Rick. I call it out very separately. I have a dad and I have a father. My father may, helped me get into the world. My dad raised me. My dad is my, he's my hero. He's the one that has been there for me and has done everything for me in my life. Been there for my kids the days they were born. He held my children the day they were born. He was there for me. He held me, hugged me, told me he loved me, told me my wife, he loved her. My, told my, my kids, his grandchildren, that he loved them. You know, he was there for everything that mattered in my life. But my natural father and I had it out. I, I basically explained to him that you are the reason I have trust issues. You are the reason I have separation and anxiety issues. You know, why I, I have a hard time formulating relationships with people. It's because of you. You know, he tried to deflect that and I kept going, no, we're not circling past this. We're not going to avoid this. This is not a cul-de-sac where you just keep going round and round till you find the driveway you like. You know, we're going to have this discussion. If you want to have a chance at a relationship with me, we're going to talk about this. This isn't on your terms. This is on my terms. And I warned him that night. I know what the answers are to the following questions I'm going to ask you. So don't lie to me. Don't try to, to BS your way out of this. If you don't tell me the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, this will be our last phone call. I asked him some very direct questions. You know, did you ever hit my mother? I knew the answer, but I needed to hear him say it. I don't know why I needed to, but I needed to. He, at first, he tried to to skate around it. And I went, no, this is not a conversation that we're going to skate. He admitted, but yet didn't totally admit. And I just, I called that a win because I also looked at it this way as, as mad as I was during that conversation. And as upset as I was about the, the, the type of conversation we were having, I also tried to put myself in his shoes a little bit of how easy would it be for me to answer that that question for somebody who I had not talked to in however many years. And there was all this water under the bridge between us and this history between us. Would I have an easy time answering these pointed, heavy questions? And I told myself, no, I knew that I wouldn't have an easy time doing it. So I started off wanting to hold his feet to the fire. By the end of the conversation, I decided that we were having the conversation and that was enough. I invited him up to my house for dinner and we had dinner. He came up one time. And after that, things got a little weird. And I said, you know, I, I don't think I'm okay with this anymore. He obviously wanted a relationship though, if he was willing to somewhat answer those questions and come have a meal. Yeah. Yeah. That was clear. Do you think he felt some regret? Yes. But I, I think he had a hard time expressing it. I know he had a hard time expressing it. It's a and hard I, thing look, to express. It is. It is. And in looking back on it now, and not that I'm giving him a pass or anything along those lines, but I can also understand if I had made mistakes with my children 
and I, you know, that time came for me to get called to stand for him, I'd have a hard time expressing it as well. And so we didn't talk for a few years. And I, I, the, the next time I talked with him was right before my, my heart procedure, my early thirties, I had a atrial fibrillation very badly. And it was at the point where it had to be corrected surgically through a procedure called an ablation. That was quite the kick to my masculinity and my ego for a little bit. The last year before my ablation, I had my heart stopped and reset six times. So I went from being a very healthy young man playing basketball, you know, pickup games three, three, four times a week, a couple hours at a clip, no problem, to not being able to walk to the other side of the house. The night before my surgery, though, I called him and I said, I don't want my last words to you to have been, I don't want to talk to you anymore. If something were to happen, and look, let's be honest, anytime you go under the knife, anytime you go under, there's always a, a possibility somewhere, somehow, no matter how minor the possibility is, there's always a possibility that something negative could happen. I didn't want him to live with that on his conscience. I didn't think that was fair of me to put that on him and expect him to live with that. And I said, this doesn't mean that I'm ready to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but it does mean that I think we should try being friends, you know? So, so yeah, no, I go down, I've only gone down once because it, with everything COVID related uh, and my daughter being autoimmune, which is a whole nother topic. Yeah. I actually looked up the name of the syndrome that your daughter has. And I also yeah. am really curious how your childhood and what happened with your dad played into you as a parent and your relationship. Yeah. I'll start off with talking about how it affected me as a husband and as a father. Again, I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the what would Jesus do thing, you know, and there was for me, it was what would Mike do? And whatever that decision was, I would do the opposite. It must have made you such a great dad then. I hope so. I hope that's how my kids see me. I really do. I, I want to be a great father. I try to be a great father. I want my children to know how much they matter to me. When it came time for my children, after we had our, our first one, his name is Parker. When Parker was born, I looked at my wife and said, okay, I'm done. And she said, that's nice. I'm not. And I went, okay, I'm not done either then. So we had another one and his name is Nolan. And after Nolan, I said, okay, I'm done. And my wife said, that's nice. I'm not. Now, when my wife decided that she wanted to have another child, her and I sat down and we talked about it and she said, I'd really like to have a, another baby. I was dead set against it because at two children, I was very comfortable with what I had. I had an eight-year-old, I had a five-year-old. The, the boys were at great ages. I was having so much fun with them trying to be dad and go do dad stuff with my boys. And I didn't feel like I could do that a third time fairly to, to another. It was the what ifs in my own brain. Would I be able to be a, a good dad to a third child? But my wife circled back a little bit later and, and she said, I understand how you feel, but this is really very important to me. And she goes, I don't think you have anything to worry about. And so I said, okay. Uh, and that was for, for Kendall. As much as I was worried about it, I, I wouldn't trade her for anything. She's too much like me. Aw. She is my mini me. How different is it too, having a daughter? Night and day, especially, and she's going to kill me for this, when <sighs> they get to the point where they're teenagers, the hormones start taking over and then things happen to young women that don't happen to young men. And as dads, we don't quite understand all those things. And we say stupid things that get us in trouble with both our daughters and our wife. And it's not because we're being insensitive, it's because we're, uh, we're guys and we're dumb. My dad is one of my best friends I love and that. I can talk with him and joke with him, you know, probably like I, much like I do with my actual, my actual buddies. You so, guys even run a business together. 
Yes, we do. Yeah. But all the decisions that I made along the way as a, a father was, what would my father do? Okay, don't do that. What would my dad do? Did he make suggestions when you found out that your daughter was going to have to be in the hospital? Yeah. So the way that all came down is that, so when on Wednesday night, she was in a school talent contest and my daughter loves to sing. And she got up there and she was singing and she was doing all these things. And, you know, we knew that she wasn't feeling well. And I had talked to my dad earlier in the week. I'm like, you know, something's just not right. She's, I said, but I, you know, it's spring in Michigan. Everybody's, you know, it's real easy for, in Michigan's weather in the spring is all over the place. It's warm one day, it's freezing the next, it's slushy raining the next day. You know, it's, it's the weather's all over the map. And so it's real easy to get sinus infections and, you know, little cold head colds and things like that. And my daughter was going through a growth spurt as well. And so my daughter's standing in front of me telling me that she's, that this doesn't feel, I got a little bit of a fever and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you, you've been sniffling for the last couple of days. It's spring in Michigan. You probably got a little bit of a head cold. We'll give you some meds. You'll, you'll be fine. And the expression we used to use around the house, which we've kind of retired since then is suck it up. You're a hockey player, which is funny because none of us are hockey players. There was these pains that she was having in her legs and she kept complaining to me. I'm like, well, well, baby, that's because you're going through a growth spurt. So remember mom just took you to the store the other day and bought you all those new clothes. She says, oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, that's why. Cause you know, as you grow, your muscles are going to hurt. Your bones are going to grow. They're going to hurt. It's, it's kind of an unfortunate thing about being, you know, close to a teenager. You're going to go through growth spurts. But that was on Wednesday, Friday, we were across state, but my wife had called me. We we're on our way home from Detroit I said on the way home, I need you to stop and get Kendall some Gatorade. We need to try and rehydrate her. Something's you know off or she can't hardly put pressure on her legs. They're really in a lot of pain. I was like, hmm. Late that night we got there, gave her the, the Gatorade. She could only take a couple sips and she would start throwing it back up. By this time, she wasn't walking. The number three in the nation children's hospital was an hour and 10 minutes away. So I went there. Now thinking that this is the flu and we get to the hospital and the doctor says right away, well, it's not the flu. I don't know what it is, but it's not the flu. As a parent, all your spidey senses are just kind of going off. They're all tingling and you, you don't know what, what direction to go, what to do. And so they started, they start running all these battery of tests, you know, we're drawing blood for this, we're drawing blood for that, you know, this, this, this. And he comes back about 20 minutes later, he goes, well, I'm happy to say that it's not MS. I'm like, wait, what? He goes, yeah, MS is off the table. I'm like, when was it on the table? You, did you, you were you going to tell us about? He goes, I think it's something else, but I'm waiting for a test to come back. I don't want to say that it's this until I have the test. I said, okay, can you give me a hint of what it is? He goes, I'd rather not, because if I'm wrong, I will have got you worked up for nothing. Okay. Just so you know, if there's any doctors listening, telling a concerned parent that you think you know what it is, but you're not going to tell them what it is, doesn't take the anxiety away. Oh my Just God, no. FYI, work that into your bedside manner notes somewhere, somehow, maybe keep that one tucked in your pocket. Just say, Hey, we're going to keep testing to find out what it is. I would have been much better with that than I think I know what it is, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. So he came back about 20 minutes later and he said, okay, I was right. It's Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I had never heard of Guillain-Barre. So we were admitted right to the hospital that night. And our doctor at that time said, well, you're probably going to be in the hospital for about two weeks and then you'll be able to go home. And it's a viral infection. It's going to have to run its course. You know, the antibodies in, in her body have gone haywire and they're trying to attack everything. That's what basically what Guillain-Barre is. It, it's a viral infection that attacks the central nervous system and convinces your body that everything is bad. And it starts shutting things down and going after the different nerve endings in your body and, and all these different things, which is why Kendall ended up being paralyzed from the neck down. 
we ended up going from being in the hospital for two weeks to an indefinite stay. They didn't know how long we were going to end up staying because her, her case progressed so rapidly and so aggressively. The biggest thing that we skipped out on is that she didn't have to get trached. And we were very fortunate because a lot of people who have Guillain-Barre end up getting, get, getting trached. So she was on feeding tubes. She was on breathing tubes. She was, she had a, a, a chest infection. And when that came about, they threw I mean, like some really strong antibiotics at her that like the kind where they have to come back in and check on you every couple minutes to make sure you haven't gone blind kind of strong. Oh my God. Um, yeah. That wasn't scary at all. And so you're sitting there watching your child with, you know, oxygen on, you know, and with a feeding tube going down her nose and, and she's unable, she's got IVs in her arms and in these different ports for different things. And she can't move. And they're like, and yeah, she's she your mini me. Yeah. And so you're watching her go through this and they're saying, yeah, we got to move her up to ICU. Wait, what happened? What's going on? She had this infection that was going to take out her lungs. Basically they had to go in and do an emergency lung puncture. And they ended up draining just under two liters of infected fluid from her lung, which it looked like split pea soup. That's how green this stuff was. It was awful, disgusting. And she was on a, on a chest tube drain for 10 days. There was a couple different times during all this where we almost lost her at least twice. So overall, we were in the hospital with Kendall with Guillain-Barre for 97 days. She had to learn how to walk again. She had to learn how to hold a pencil, how to hold a spoon, do all these different things. 97 days, 33 of them were in the ICU. As a parent, that was the single toughest thing I've ever had to do was to, you know, because for the 97 days she was there, I was at the hospital for 95 of them. My wife was there for all 97. Oh my God. I, my boys were old enough. I mean, this was only two years ago. So my boys were old enough that, that my one had just graduated high school. My other was in his junior year. So my mother-in-law came across from across state and she stayed with the boys for three months. That's wonderful. Yeah. And helping them out and making sure that, you know, cause my oldest was going to college. My youngest was in high school, you know, getting the boys off and going, doing all the things, preparing meals for them, doing laundry, all the things I was pretty sure that two teenage boys weren't going to do. And I didn't want my, my home to end up looking like animal house. She was very kind of, it was very kind of her and awesome of my mother-in-law to do that. Yeah. Do you have any idea how she got this? just a viral infection. We don't know from what, how there are possibilities that it can come from vaccinations and things, but her most recent vaccination before this happened was six months prior. Mm -hmm. So the chances of it being vaccination related are zero. She lost an absolute ton of weight in the hospital. She was incredibly see-through. She was always fighting something. Her body was exhausted. It's quite the journey to have to go through with a child. Where was the light at the end of the tunnel? The 33 days in the ICU wasn't in one full strip. It was in two separate, three separate jumps. Excuse me. We had three separate times we had to go back to the ICU. And as a parent, that's extremely disheartening. You think that you're, and it had to be for Kendall too. I can only imagine. Fortunately, she says she doesn't re remember much of what happened because she was so sick and she was, they had her highly medicated. So she said that she doesn't remember a lot of the ICU, which I so very thankful for, but the light at the end of the tunnel was coming out of the ICU for the third time. It honestly was because when we left that time, it was the strongest I'd ever seen her. Because when the first two times we left the ICU, I was not convinced that we weren't coming back. The third time when we left, I was convinced we weren't coming back. She was looking stronger. She was acting stronger. They had to replace her, her antibodies. They had to do a, uh, something called plasmapheresis, where they basically wash and replace your plasma. And it's just, 
it's a it's a it's a thing it's a whole thing but this third trip out of the hospital when we came back i felt like we hit the ground running at the rehabilitation hospital i felt like when we came back she was she was determined she she wanted to go home that's really beautiful and you know family is really important to my dad so he's going to love this episode is there anything that you'd like to ask him you clearly have a very close relationship with your father hence the name of the show. What was his example for being a father? And what was the biggest lesson he learned from that example? That is a good one. To be continued. Woohoo! Thank you. Also, I want you to promote your three shows, even the one sure. on hiatus. Yeah. And all of the ways in which people can find you and support you. All right. So focused on forward. That's my first show. That's my baby. That's the one that's going on hiatus, but we talk to people of all walks in life, everyday people who have gone through, through some stuff. They've had to endure something. They've made life changes or life has changed for them, but you can find that podcast on any of your favorite podcast providers. Of course, you can find it on YouTube where there's a slide presentation over the audios, but you can find that on YouTube, just search focused on forward. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find it as at podcast FOF. And on Instagram as focused on forward because somebody already took at podcast FOF and I was only mostly jealous that I couldn't find a way to make it tie in on both. Anyway, for funny science fiction, you can find us on Facebook. We have both there. Now there's two separate pages on Facebook. There's one for the podcast and then there's one for the Facebook group. If you want to join in on the fun, just search funny science fiction and be one of us crazy meme throwing people. And uh, you'll have lots of fun. If you like laughs, if you like sci-fi in a family-friendly environment, please feel free to join it. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Funny Sci-Fi. See what we did there? We got them both to match. But yeah, at Funny Sci-Fi, uh, you can find us there. That's probably the best, honestly, the best way to get a hold of me and talk. If you want to talk with me, talk with me on Twitter. That's where I pay most of my attention to. I haven't quite figured out the whole Instagram thing yet. I know people like it. It's not really my jam. And then there's the new show. That's called Pop Culture Addicts, and you can find it on Twitter and Instagram at PCA Pod Show. Yeah, again, if you want to talk to me, that's the best way to do that. And that should be coming out with new episodes early September. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Well, this is an intense interview about what fatherhood and being a dad is all about. Quite intense, wasn't it? Definitely lots of layers. And a lot of layers to it. He really gives you a history of lessons about fatherhood and decisions that you would make as a father later on that are affected by that uh, issue of your dad or your father. And also mixed siblings and how having half sisters and half brothers, what that means also. But you know, it started off where your father used to collect comic books with a couple of friends. Isn't that what a lot of young boys are for that who are into the comic books and into, into the, the movies of the comic book heroes, whether it's Superman or the Marvel studio of superheroes, is that all of us really want to look up to someone and, and are looking for a hero. I think all children feel a lot more secure when their father is their hero. What do you think of them, Apples? And when a father is not standing up and being part of their children's lives in every way, how they're absent, it can really affect the children and it can affect them for a long time. 
not just a day or two, not just a month or two, but for years and decades. Definitely. I found it to be very interesting that after he had a really good time also with the science fiction and the comic book and the hero, is that it really helped him develop into finding other things that he was interested in and giving it also a lot of energy and a lot of spirit. But I still think that the main part of this story is how it affected him and being a parent as well. What was the example that you were shown from your dad and how have you used that as a father? The example that I really had from my mother and father, they really have been partners in it all the way, was they were really dedicated to have a legacy and a continuum of their families that had tragic, really, endings where my mom's side of the family were mostly slaughtered uh, by Hitler. My father's side of the family, where they came from Russia, it's, it's very similar to the Fiddler on the Roof story, where they lost everything, where they had a big business in a, uh, near Kiev. And then, of course, you know, Mendel uh, died and Alice died at very young ages. A lot of really hardships that had to be overcome and a lot of loss of life. Uh, they wanted to be able to create a family. My dad tried a few times to run a business. Fact is, is that I followed some of that dedication because I had a very good relationship with my grandparents and working with my parents, give them the opportunity to make some of their dreams come true. Turned out to be some of my own dreams then. When you have hardworking parents and they are not selfish and that they're caring and want everything for their children and go out of their way to give their children everything. And to some degree, where they spoil this rotten, you then want to really make them proud of you and, and where you want to follow through and can have that continuum and wear their shoes and carry on for them and carry on for your heritage and your people. And guess what? When you do that, your life has a lot, a lot of meaning. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 